John 1, 1 to 3, and then also verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the word. Now, does that verse sound familiar? In the beginning? Does that sound familiar to you? In the beginning. Okay. Was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And may the Lord add his blessing today upon the public reading of his word, and you can have a seat. You know, the Gospel of John is a, it's a picture, it's kind of a portrait of Jesus Christ and his saving work. And it focuses really on the last three years of Jesus' life, if you've read through the Gospel of John. You know, especially it focuses on his death and his resurrection. And the purpose of John is really clear. We talked about this last week. John 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so, in other words, this book, this gospel is written to help people believe on Christ and to have eternal life. That's the reason that John wrote what he wrote. But don't get in your head that this book of John is only for believers. You know, it's written for believers and unbelievers. Believers on Jesus must go on (laughs) believing in Jesus in order to be saved in the end. And Jesus said in John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch. And he withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire, and they're burned. And then in John 8, 31, he said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. So when John says these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name, he meant that he was writing to awaken faith in unbelievers and then sustain faith in the believers, and in that way lead both to eternal life. And there, be, there may be no better book, no better book in the Bible to help you keep on trusting and loving Jesus above all else than this book of John, than this gospel of John written by uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it really is a eyewitness account. You know, this picture of Jesus is written by an eyewitness who was part of all these events that are recorded in this book. Five times in this gospel, we find the unusual words, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. For example, at the very end, it says in John 21, 20, Peter turned and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And then four verses later, in 21, 24, it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things. And so the one called the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was there leaning on the breast or the shoulder of Jesus at the Last Supper, wrote this book as his divinely inspired witness to the events of Jesus' life and what they meant for us. And one of the reasons that I say it's inspired or divinely inspired 
is that this is what Jesus promised to do. And he said in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all the things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And in John 16, 13, he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. In other words, Jesus chose his apostles as his representatives, and he saved them, he taught them, he sent them, and he gave them through the Holy Spirit divine inspiration, divine guidance in the writing of the scripture so it could be the foundation of everything we do. It could be the foundation of the church. And I believe that John's gospel is the inspired word of God. Now, those words, word of God, bring us to the first words of John's gospel. Just let me repeat John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. These are the verses that I want to focus on today. So first we focus on that term, the word. And obviously the word is Jesus. In, be, in the beginning was the word. And so Jesus, he's the eternal word. In the beginning was the word. And then it says, all things were made through him. So he's not only the eternal word, he's the creative word. You know, who made this world? I mean, did it just happen? That's what we learn about in school, right? <laughs> who made the universe? Who created the, the starry heavens? Who scooped out the oceans and then heaped up the mountains and then flung out the stars? Did you know it was uh, the baby <laughs> that was born in Matthew chapter 1 was the great God who created everything in Genesis chapter 1, and that's what the Bible says. It was made by him. It was made by God's son. He made the worlds, and the Bible says so in this first chapter of John. Without him was not anything made that was made, and everything you can see bears this stamp, made by Jesus, made by Jesus, made by Jesus. He's also not only the eternal word and not only the creative word, he is the incarnate word. The most important thing to know about this word is found in that verse 14 that we read, and the word actually became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The word refers to Jesus Christ. God spoke through human flesh. The word became flesh. The infinite one became an infant. God came down at Christmas. We're going to celebrate in a few months. God was manifest in the flesh, and that's the reason we call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God's way the invisible becomes visible. Jesus is God's way the unknowable becomes knowable. Jesus is God's way the poor, that poor finite creatures like we are can understand something of the nature of God because we cannot understand God until God became a man. God in these last days, the book of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, and now we can understand something of God, and John knows what he's about to write in these 21 chapters, and he's going to tell us the story of what Jesus Christ did and what Jesus Christ taught, and this is a book about the life and the work of the man, flesh and blood, but God, without ceasing to be God, 
the man Jesus Christ, the man that John knew and saw and heard, and he actually touched him with his hands as he wrote about in his first letter, 1 John chapter 1. He had flesh and blood. He was not a ghost. He was not an apparition. But he ate and he drank and he got tired. And John knew him very closely. Jesus, his mother, lived with John in the last part of his life. Remember John 19, 26? Remember Jesus said from the cross? He said, woman, here's your son. And he said to John, here is your mother. He wanted John, the one whom he loved, to take care of his mother. Therefore, what John is doing in John chapter 1 Verses 1 to 3 is telling us the most ultimate things about Jesus that he can. It took John more than three years to figure out the fullness of who Jesus was. But he doesn't want us to, to, he doesn't want his readers to take more than three verses to find out what took him so long to understand, what took him so long to know. He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the beginning of his gospel the eternal majesty and the deity of Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the creative word, the incarnate word. So let's talk about Jesus in his infinite majesty. And that's the point of verses one to three. I mean, he means for us to read this gospel, I think, worshipfully. John wants us to read this gospel humbly and submissively awestruck that the man at the wedding in the well and on the mountain is actually the creator of the universe. Don't you see this? Don't you feel this in your heart? This is not my idea. This is not the structure of my sermon. This is the structure of the book of John. This is the way John wrote, the way God meant for him to put it together. You and I might have written it some, you know, kind of subtly, you know, to let Jesus' identity grow. And so that, you know, we might wonder, like I said what, last week, you know, who is this guy? Who is this guy? John says, no, no, uh-uh. In the very first words out of the end of my pen, I'm going to stun you. I'm going to blow you guys away with the identity of this man who became flesh and dwelt among us. And so there's no mistaking. John means for us to read every word of this gospel with the clear, with the solid, amazed knowledge that Jesus Christ was God, was with God and was God, and that the one who laid down his life for us actually created the universe. John wants you to know and believe in this majestic, magnificent Savior, whatever else you may enjoy about Jesus. John wants you to know and love and trust and treasure Jesus in his infinite majesty. But why word? Why did he choose to call Jesus the Word? In the beginning was the Word. And my answer to that question is this. Jesus calls, or John calls Jesus the Word because he had come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that Jesus himself, in his coming, in his working, in his teaching, in his dying, in his rising, was the final decisive message of God. In other words, what God had to say to us was not only or mainly what Jesus said, but who Jesus was and what he did. His words clarified himself and clarified his work, but his self and his work were the main truth God was revealing. I am the truth, Jesus said in John 14, 6. He came to witness to the truth. 
John 18, 37. And he was the truth. Again, John 14, 6. His witness and his person were the word of truth. He said, you know what? If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. John 8, 31. And he said, abide in me, John 15, 7. When we abide in him, we are abiding in the word. And he said that his works were actually a witness about him. In other words, in his working, he was the word. And so the witness of Jesus was through his lips and through his life, just like our witness should be, through not only our lips, but through our lives. You see, Jesus is God's final message. Does that mean you can't have a dream or God can't speak to you today through the whole, of course not. But I'm telling you, Jesus is God's decisive, final message in Revelation 19, 13. And John wrote that book, too, in the Bible. He describes Jesus' glorious return. And it says, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God as he returns to earth. And then two verses later, John says, from his mouth, comes a sharp sword, Revelation 19, 15. In other words, Jesus strikes the nations in the power of the word of God that he speaks, and that's the sword of the Spirit. But the power of this word is so united with Jesus himself that John says that he doesn't just have a sword of God's word coming out of his mouth, but he is the word of God. And so John begins his gospel. He has uh, in view, all, all of this revelation, all of this truth, all of this witness, all the glory, all the light, all the words that came out of Jesus in his living and his teaching and in his dying and in his rising. And he sums up all that revelation of God with the name. He is the Word. The first, the final, the ultimate, decisive, absolutely true, reliable Word. And the meaning is the same as Hebrews one, uh, verses one and two, and I think it says 12 in the bulletin. It's, it's verses one and two. It says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The son of God is God's climatic, decisive word to the world. And I think God kind of gave us a gradual revelation of himself you know, there was this gradual unfolding of himself, and God has been speaking to man, and he, he speaks to man in nature, but you can't find all you need to know about God in nature. And he has spoken to man in history, but you can't find all you need to know about God studying history. And he, he spoke to man through the law, but you can't find all you need to know about God by studying the law. And he's spoken to man by the prophets, but you can't know all you need to know about God by studying the prophets. But gradually... Gradually, God has been unfolding his plan, and God couldn't give it to the human race all at one time, any more than you can take a, a first grader and put him in school and start him out with calculus. But God has been unfolding himself and unfolding himself, and then finally, the Bible says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, and that son is God's final Revelation. God really doesn't have anything else to say. <laughs> That's it. And all that God is saying, he's saying in Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's final revelation. He has spoken to us in these last days by his son. No need to look 
any further. You remember, I've told this story about the man playing the cello. You know, he had just his finger on one spot, and he was sawing back and forth, and somebody said, why don't you move your fingers up and down like the others? He said, well, they're looking for it. I've found it. Jesus is the one. No need to look anymore. Jesus is the final revelation, and God wants to communicate with man. And why does God want to communicate with man? Because God is love, and love must say so. Love cannot be silent. Love has to speak. And you know what love wants to speak? It wants to say in the best way it can how much it loves. And God is saying through Jesus to the whole world, he's saying, I love you. I love you. I love you. And the Bible says that God has spoken to us by his son, and Jesus tells us something of the great loving heart of God that nothing and no one else could say. Let me give you four observations uh, quickly about Jesus. First of all, the time of his existence. Verse 1 of John, it says, in the beginning was the word. The words in the beginning, they are identical in the Greek to the first two words in the Greek Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's not an accident because the first thing John is going to tell us about what Jesus did is that he created everything. He created the universe, and that's what he says in verse 3. So the words in the beginning mean before there was any created matter, there was the word. There was the Son of God. Remember, these things are written so that you might believe that what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John begins his gospel by locating Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, in relation to time, specifically before time. And Jude agrees with this. I'm going to read the the benediction of Jude at the end of this service. It's a great doxology. It goes like this, to the only God, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, Before all time. And now and forever. Amen. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the times of the ages. So before there was any time or any matter, there was the word of God. Jesus Christ, the son of God. That is who we will meet in this gospel as we go through it, week by week, verse by verse, precept by precept. Observation number one, the time of his existence. Observation number two, just think of the essence of his identity. Verse one, at the end, it says, the word was God. I mean, one of the marks of this gospel is that the most important doctrines or the weightiest doctrines are often delivered in the simplest of terms. And this could not get any simpler, it could, and it could not get any weightier, couldn't get any more important than this. The word who became flesh dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, was and is God. Let this be known loud and clear, Calvary. Indeed, all Christian churches, at all Christian churches, we worship Jesus Christ as God. We fall down with Thomas before Jesus, like he did in John 20, 28, that we'll go over someday, and we'll confess with joy, we'll confess with amazement and wonder, my Lord and my God. And this separates us, church, from all the cults 
This separates us from all the other religions of the world. I mean, when we hear the Jewish leaders say in John 10, 33, hey, it's not good, it's not, it's not for a, a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And we cry out, no, this is not blasphemy, this is who he is. This is our savior, this is the Lord, this is the king, this is our God. You see what this means for our sermon series as we go through the Gospel of John? It means that we're gonna spend week after week getting to know God. Isn't that our mission statement? To know Christ and to make him known? And we're going to get to know God as we get to know Jesus. Do you want to know God? Then come with us. Invite others to come and meet God as we meet Jesus. Theology, right, is the study of God. Christology is the study of Christ. If a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim ever says to you, this is a mistranslation, you know, it should not read, the word was God. It should read, the word was a God. Have you ever talked to a Jehovah Witness? There's a right way here from the context that you can know that that's wrong, even if you don't know Greek. <laughs> and I'll show it to you in a minute, but, um, but first, let's look at his relationship to God. Observation number three. Verse one, in the middle of the verse, it says, the word was with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is the heart of the great historic doctrine of the Trinity. We tried to cover this last Wednesday night in our confirmation class. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, one essence, the word, Jesus Christ, was with God, and he was God. He is God, and he has a relationship with God. He is God, and he is the image of God, perfectly reflecting all that God is and standing forth from all eternity as the fullness of deity in a distinct person. There is one divine essence, three persons, three centers of consciousness, right? Two of them are mentioned here, the Father and the Son. We're going to learn those names later on in the book. The Holy Spirit will be introduced later. You know, I don't understand the whole trinity, but I believe it. Since we see in a mirror dimly, we only know in partial ways. And do not be surprised that sometimes this trinity is kind of a mystery, but don't throw it away. If Jesus Christ is not God, you listen to me, he cannot accomplish your salvation. How can a sinner save sinners? He was God, the sinless Savior. And if he was not God, his glory would not be sufficient to satisfy that longing for God that you have in your soul. There is a hole in your soul that can only be filled with God. And so if you throw away the deity of Jesus Christ, you throw away your soul. And with it, all the joy in the age to come. And so we've seen, first of all, the, the time of his existence before all time. The essence of his deity, the word was God. His relationship to God, the word was with God. And now we close with his relationship to the world. Observation number four. 
Verses two and three, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. You know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He taught us, he healed us, he rebuked us, he protected us, loved us, died for us, and he created the universe. Remember, you should retain the the mystery of the Trinity from verse one. Don't leave it, you know, as soon as you get to verse three. All things were made through him. Yes, another was acting through the word. God was, but the word is God, you know? (laughs) Therefore, don't let yourself diminish the majesty of the work of Christ as the creator. He was the Father's agent, or the word, in the creation of all things, but in doing it, he was God. The word created the world. Your Savior, our Lord, your friend, Jesus is your maker. Jesus was not made. Jesus was your maker. He was not made. Now suppose a Muslim or a Jehovah Witness or somebody from any brand of an ancient heresy called Iranianism from the fourth century says Jesus was not God. He was not eternal, not eternally begotten, but rather Jesus was created. He was the first of creation. He was the highest of all the angels, or as the Arians say it, there was when he was not. And John has written verse three specifically in a way that makes that impossible. He did not just say all things were made through him. You might think that would be enough to settle the whole thing, right? He is not a creature. He created creatures, but somebody could conceivably say, yes, but all things does not not, uh, include himself. It includes everything but himself. So he was created by the Father, but then with the Father, he created all the other things. John did not leave that uh, to us to believe. He said, in addition, the last part of part three, and without him was not anything made that was made. What do the final words that was made add to the meaning of without him was not anything made? Without him was not anything made that was made. John adds this, and he makes explicit, he makes emphatic and crystal clear that anything in the category of made, Christ made it. Therefore, Christ was not made. Because before you exist, you can't bring yourself into being. Christ was not made, and that's what it means to be God, and the word was God, and may God help us to see the majesty and the glory of these truths and to, and to worship him, and to worship him. I want to conclude with a story that I read. Uh, it was a blog, a true story about uh, somebody that was going through cancer. And uh, she said, my husband endured cycle after cycle of chemo. He was separated from his children many nights. He was hooked up to chemo for 24 hours at a time. He listened to doctors tell him bad news after bad news. He was left paralyzed and unable to get out of bed. And he never said how much he wished our church would incorporate coffee bars like many others were. Nothing against coffee bars. Never once did he say he wished the lighting in our sanctuary resembled the lighting he saw in other churches boasting of on social media. Never before. He never told me how, how cool it was that churches were putting couches on the platform. Nothing wrong with couches on the platform. 
He didn't boast of the, the graphics and the props on the platform that some churches were incorporated. He talked about Jesus. He quoted scriptures. He reminded me of sermons he had heard. In the middle of the night, he sang songs of praise and worship to God. And he spent his time praying because nothing a church does to strategize, to bring in members, helps you in the time of the storm. It is only Jesus. Can you say amen to that? It's only Jesus. We sang, you're all I really want. You're all I really need. Father, every breath I've got, you've given it to me. And that's what the gospel of John is all about. It's all about Jesus. These things are written so that you might believe, I mean really believe, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. It should cause us to worship him. And we're going to do that with a hymn, uh, 189 in your hymnal, Ferris, Lord Jesus. What a great hymn of the church to focus our eyes on Jesus as we worship him in giving and as we worship him uh, through this hymn. And before that, let's pray together before we gather the offering. God, we thank you that we can worship you. We thank you that that's why we're alive, to worship you, to enjoy you forever, to believe, Jesus, that you are really the Messiah. You are the Christ the Son of God, and by, by believing, we might have life forever. Lord, thank you for this message of John. Thank you that you are worthy of all our worship because you, Jesus, are God, the creator of everything. You're our redeemer. You're the Lord. You're the king. You're our beautiful Savior. Bless the gifts, Lord, that are given. Bless each giver. And Lord, touch our hearts as we worship you through this great hymn of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.